You can grab a seat. That song and that sentiment, that sort of celebration, is what ought to characterize the everyday life of a follower of Jesus. There's nothing better than him. There's no one who could do in an individual's life what it is that God has done in your life thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Amen? And so when we get together, regardless of what the song is and the melody is and what the words are on the screen, upbeat or slower, whether the words are joyful and triumphant or more somber and reflective, we celebrate. He's turned mourning into dancing. He's traded beauty for ashes. He's turned graves into gardens, and he's the only one that could do it. Where we ended last week was with the Jewish people making that kind of celebration. Because what should have been their ultimate destruction as a people, their annihilation there in Persia, God did just the opposite. That's what we saw last week in Esther 9, verses 1 to 28. This week, we're going to pick up in verse 29 and do the last seven verses of the book of Esther, which goes through all of chapter 10, which is just three verses. And it's like the epilogue. When you watch a movie that's like based on true events and you get all the way to the end, but before the credits have started and they do the thing where like they start telling you what the characters did like for the rest of their lives or for the next 20 years or whatever the case might be. That's where we are in the book of Esther. The author gives you a look at what life was like after the events of God saving his people. What happened to the main kind of players in the story? That's what we're going to see this morning. Let me give you a little bit of a roadmap because we're going to kind of branch two weeks together here a little bit. We're going to look at the last seven verses. What do they tell us about each one of the individuals and the Jewish people as a whole here? And then we're going to uh, see the reminder that that gives us in terms of Esther, the, the book in its entirety. And then we're going to zoom out because the book of Esther uh, has something to say about uh, a number of different items that we haven't addressed specifically, and it would be to do a disservice to the book of Esther to not address those items specifically, to draw them out explicitly. So we're going to do that with four different things over the course of kind of the second half of this morning and next week. Those four things are as follows. The first one we've mentioned before, that there's this complex sort of handshake that exists between the theological truth of God's sovereignty and the everyday reality of human responsibility. We're going to pull that together and then answer the question, what does that mean for us day in and day out? The second one is this. The book of Esther has something to say about the reality of working for the good of our current world while fixing our eyes on the, on the assurance of eternity. There's a relationship that exists between those two things in the life of a follower of Jesus. What is it? How do we handle it? The book of Esther has something to say about the role of women within the kingdom of God. So we'll talk about that. And then the book of Esther has something to say about the responsibility of individuals within the kingdom of God, as well as the collective people of God within his kingdom in terms of working toward the good of the world that we live in. And so we're going to look at those four things over the next two weeks. But first, we're going to handle the last seven verses of the book of Esther. So if you've got your Bible open, I'm going to start in Esther 9, verse 29, and I'm going to read through the end of the book. 
Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote this second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were written into the record. King Ahasuerus opposed attacks throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. All of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's rank with which the king had honored him, have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Midia and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all his descendants. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. God, that we can gather together as a church here in this room and uh, in whatever room someone may be listening to this right now, and we can celebrate what it is that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for taking our greatest uh, threat and enemy and giving us relief from that, thanks to your grace through Jesus Christ. God, that our mourning and brokenness has been turned into rejoicing and holiness as we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would celebrate that this morning and in our daily lives. I pray we would celebrate that every time we're gathered together as a church. God, I pray that we would lift high that celebration this morning in our song. I pray that we would be reminded of it from your word, that as we interact with one another, that that spirit of rejoicing would be what marks us as followers of Jesus. God, would you speak to us? Speak from your word. Speak by the presence of your Holy Spirit here in this room and in the hearts of each and every believer who is uh, gathered with us online or listening via podcast. Lord, would you challenge us with the truth of your word? Would you comfort us, give us assurance and boldness through the truth of your word? God, and would, as a result of this, uh, would we exalt the gospel and would we be spurred on to live in greater obedience to it? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I want to do. Uh, One of our main characters is gone, Haman. He's no more. So the end of the book of Esther has something to say about four individuals or groups of people. I want to start with what's running in the background here of the last seven verses, and that's the Jewish people as a whole. We're told that a tax has been imposed upon the people of Persia. That's chapter 10, verse 1. Remember back in chapter two when Esther was made queen. In honor of Esther, the king uh, put an end to taxation for a time. We're not told how long. If this imposing of a tax is the reversal of that, it's been years that they haven't been paying. It's more than likely that for a season of time, there was a pause in the taxation in order to celebrate Esther and then taxing normally came back, and now by the end of the book, the king has imposed something new upon his people. The point is to say this. We're back basically to where things started for the Jewish people. When the book of Esther began, the Jewish people weren't really under any threat. That came later. 
where things started was that there were there was this minority group of people, the Israelites, living in a foreign place, subject to the whims of a leader whose intentions couldn't totally be trusted and whose leadership is wildly unpredictable. That's where the book ends. For all that's happened, all that God has done to save his people, to give them relief from the potential of destruction, they end essentially in the same place that they began the book of Esther. Those are the Jewish people. Life is back to just standard everyday life in Persia. King Ahasuerus, again, remember where the book started. In chapter one, all of his wealth and power were on display in a couple of very large and lavish parties. There are curtains of purple and white, couches of gold and silver. Um, He's got enough goblets like for wine that everybody can have a unique one. That's where the book started. Where do you think he got all of that stuff? Tributes and taxes from his people, right? So he's back into the same place where he started. And we're given the little uh, sort of tag in verse 2 of chapter 10 that all of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments were recorded in the historical book of events of the kings of of Midia and Persia. He's just back to being who King Ahasuerus is. Everyone look at me. Come see how great I am. Here's all of my wealth. Here's all the great stuff that I've done. Make sure you record it in the book so that everybody can pay attention. And for all that he has seen happen, for everything that's changed within his own court now with Mordecai being second in command and Esther being the new queen, it's basically back to King Ahasuerus being King Ahasuerus. Mordecai. Mordecai began the book standing beside Esther. Literally every day he would go and check on her in the king's harem. Serving King Ahasuerus, he did that by saving the king's life and getting passed over for a promotion and then advocating for his people's safety basically from the sidelines. By the end of the book, here he is standing beside Esther, literally now, King Ahasuerus, Esther, the queen, Mordecai, second most powerful person in the kingdom. There they are standing side by side, serving the king. And how does the very, the book end? He's still advocating for his people. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all of his descendants. For all that Mordecai has seen happened, he's pretty much in the same position that he began the book in. And then last, Esther, Chapter 9, verse 29 begins with what is the only time in the book of Esther where her Persian status and her Jewish heritage are brought together in one title. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail. She's fully stepped into both of these roles that she has. She is the queen of Persia, and she's acting in that capacity, right? Issuing this decree, going before the king in order to save her people. But she's also now no longer ashamed of being Jewish. She's the daughter of Abihail. She's let that be known. There's no reason to hide it anymore. And she's walking in both of those roles. A lot has changed for Esther. She's no longer merely an orphaned Jewish girl. She's also not just solely the queen of Persia. She is both. And even though it's been a process for her to step into that, from the moment she was crowned queen, she was both. 
just took a process for her to accept that and to really embrace it and step into it. And the reality is that for every follower of Jesus, we have this dual sort of experience in life. It's why Paul, at the beginning of the book of Colossians, opens up that letter by addressing his readers, saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae. If certain translations would say in Christ, in Colossae. We have this dual sort of reality that we live in. At the deepest kind of core of who we are as human beings. If we've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are in Christ. Nothing is going to change that. Scripture tells us that when you are saved by God's grace and the blood of Jesus Christ covers you, you're robed in his righteousness, Christ is now in you and you are in him and nothing can change that. And yet, we're also in this sort of temporal place. So for Brent Moore, in Christ in Liberty, Missouri. You might be in Christ in the Northland, wherever you're watching from or wherever your address lists you. But we've got to figure out how to walk in that. And as we grow as Christians, we get more comfortable with what does it mean to live my life rooted in Christ and yet also established in a particular place in a particular time. That's the sort of like, for such a time as this motif, which we'll come back to here in a little bit. We're all in the middle of that. We're part of God's people, and that can never change. And yet, we've got to figure out how to live in a complex, broken world. And the meshing of those two things together is often, like, head-spinningly difficult. We're faced with a myriad of situations and circumstances in our life, and we've got to try to figure out how is it that we take the reality of being in Christ and apply it to this in-fill-in-the-blank place where everything seems broken and oftentimes terrible. How do we do that? What does it look like? One little takeaway from this morning, and it's not the most uh, pressing thing, certainly, but it's at least a starting point in addressing that tension, and it's this. Keep the order of those things correct. Follower of Jesus, you are in Christ and in a, a place in this world. And when we get those things backwards, when we live life as though our primary reality is that we are in a place in this world and then some distant second is the the fact that we are in Christ, it is obvious. We interact with situations as if this world were the only thing that exists and this situation were the most important reality facing us in life. And that's not true. But when we get the order wrong, when we don't live in Christ in a place, but instead we live in a place oh yeah, in Christ, it becomes apparent. It becomes apparent in the way we interact with one another in the church. It becomes apparent in the way we interact with situations that exist outside the church and in the world. And it's not just obvious to Christians, it's obvious to people that aren't Christian. That hey, something's off here. Isn't your ultimate reality grounded in the Jesus that you speak of? And the answer to that should always unequivocally be yes, first, most primary in Christ, in a particular place. When we keep that in order, the way that we live looks a certain way. By the time you get to the end of the book of Esther, more or less, everything's back to just normal. And there should be comfort in that. 
Because when we zoom out and we think about the book, who has been the one directing all of the events? God. And if everything is just back to normal, who is still the one directing all of the events? God. As circumstances change, God does not. There's great comfort in knowing that as our temporary worldly situations shift and ebb and flow over the course of our lives, the one who is sovereign and omniscient and omnipotent and working providentially is never going to change. Oftentimes, so much changes in our circumstances and yet the most important reality does not. Sometimes our situations change and it feels like everything just goes back to the way it was before kind of like by the time you end the book of Esther. Other times we walk through a season of life where we know in the moment everything is going to be different now because of fill in the blank. And we can sense that and feel it in the moment and yet we ought to be comforted by the fact that even if everything does change, the most foundational reality does not. God never changes. He will always be faithful to his eternal promises. He will always be a God who never sleeps, never tires, never cedes his throne. He's ever watchful, ever present, ever involved, ever enthroned as the king of kings. And that is the beauty of the book of Esther. It's a picture of God's sovereignty and providence in one situation that ought to remind us that God is sovereign and working providential, providentially in every situation. We've said this throughout the book, but the point of the book of Esther is not for us to be like Esther. The point of the book of Esther is for us to fall deeper in love with the God of Esther, that we would see God's sovereign guiding hand in this book and fall deeply, deeply in love with that, that we would learn to trust his sovereignty, that we would learn to rest in his providence. I've had a few really big prayers as we've been moving through this book as a congregation. One is that I pray that our view of God would be expanded, and because of that expanded view of God, our love for him would be deepened. Another prayer is that our trust in God would grow. I've been praying that our awareness of God and the daily events of our lives would be heightened. I've been praying that as a congregation, we would grow in some of how we read and understand the Old Testament. I've been praying that our ability to see the shadows of the gospel in the Old Testament would attune our hearts to the glorious reality of the fact that the gospel's culmination has arrived in Jesus. Because of those prayers, we've kept the main thing the main thing as we've gone throughout the book of Esther, keeping our eyes on God, the way that he's guiding his sovereign hand. And so as we end, it's important to just zoom out and say, look, the circumstances could change wildly or they could change not at all in your life. And God would still be God sovereign and good and present and providential in your life. That's the main thing. But there are some other matters that are worth pointing out. They matter to the way that we interact with the world as Christians. They matter in terms of the way we interact within the church as Christians. They matter in terms of how we understand who God is as Christians. And they matter in terms of how we understand who we are as Christians. And to not point them out and comment on them would be to do a disservice to some of what's apparent in the book of Esther. So I want to start to work through the four things I mentioned at the, 
at the opening here. The first one is this complex handshake that exists between God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. If you want to jot down the theological term for that sort of tension, the term is divine concurrence. Divine concurrence is defined this way. This is from a theologian named Louis Burkhoff. Divine concurrence is the cooperation of the divine power with all subordinate powers. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. Causing them to act precisely as they do and as they must do for the fulfillment of God's will and purposes. Stated another way from Karen Jobis, she says that the Bible presents divine concurrence as operating in such a way to leave humanity responsible for evil, yet to show God using the effect of their evil for his good purposes. This isn't something that I need to like really hammer away on in an intellectual sense this morning, partly because we've talked about it numerous times as we've gone through the book, and also partly because we're 2,000 some years into Christianity here, and no one has completely solved the theological tension of these two things. We will not know the precise way that all of this worked until we're on the other side of glory. But it's worth pointing out, stated in my own words, the reality is this. God is entirely sovereign over the unfolding of history, and we are entirely responsible for our individual actions. That means we can take comfort in this, that nothing in all of human history has ever caught God by surprise. Nothing in all of human history has ever slipped through his sovereign hands. And yet, the brokenness of humanity and its effects on the world grieve him to no end. And those two things can exist completely side by side. There's no need to compromise on either side of that coin. As I mentioned last week, our finite minds wrestle with how to reconcile those two things, but we're looking at a square and he's holding a cube. We're looking at a circle, he's got a sphere. We're seeing in 2D and it's as if he is seeing in 3D or 4 or 5D because there are extra dimensions that he can see that we don't understand because his ways are higher than ours and his thoughts are higher than ours. See this in Esther. Everything that happens, sinful or holy, happens the way that it does, and it cannot thwart God's plan. All of it also happens directly within the flow of history. That's the sort of divine powers and subordinate powers. God is divine. He is omnipotent. He has all the power. He is sovereign over all things, and he uses subordinate powers. Ben's ability to make his own decisions. Michelle's ability to make her own decisions, the way that time works, the way that governments make decisions, the way that seasons and things change on the earth. God marshals all of those subordinate powers in order to direct things toward his desired ends. So in Esther, Persia operates like Persia. Ahasuerish acts like Ahasuerish. Every servant in the palace was just chosen the way that servants are chosen. They behaved the way that servants behaved. Every woman in the king's harem behaved exactly as they would in any sort of situation. Esther was Esther. Haman was Haman. Mordecai was Mordecai. And all of it happens exactly as it needs to happen within the sovereignty of God, and yet exactly as each person would have naturally acted in any setting. And that is the key. God is not, the Bible does not present God as behind the scenes kind of pulling the strings on the decisions and the behaviors that any given individual partakes in. 
we're all acting exactly as we would naturally act, and yet God is entirely sovereign. And our brains have a hard time meshing those two things together. There's nothing that I could do that would catch God by surprise, either a righteous thing or a sinful thing. And yet I'm entirely responsible for if I chose the righteous thing or I chose the sinful thing. And we don't need to try to compromise on either side of that. The Bible certainly doesn't. We get more squeamish in that. And we want to either say, God's either entirely sovereign or I'm entirely responsible and they can't both coexist. The reality is that they do. What does that actually mean though? How does that impact each of us? First and foremost, it means we can absolutely with rock solid certainty, trust the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God in every situation. Every single one even when it feels like life is falling apart, and even in the times where it feels like our own sin has brought brutal, natural sort of everyday consequences into our life, we can trust God and his goodness in those moments. On the other side of that, though, it means we're responsible. We have to accept responsibility for the way that we act in the world. And that means that we, as the people of God, have a responsibility to have our thoughts and our actions sanctified by the Holy Spirit to come before the Lord and lay our lives down humbly and allow the Holy Spirit to change our own desires and our own behaviors and our own thoughts more and more into line with his will, his decrees, his commands, and with the life of Jesus. As we learn to long for the things that are of God, we swim freely in the stream of God's will and his purposes. That's the place where we want to be. And it requires a life of sanctification, a life of committing ourselves to figuring out what does it mean to be in Christ, in Kansas City, and to live that as would be pleasing and glorifying to the Lord, knowing that he's sovereign over everything that happens, and yet I'm responsible for the things that I do. God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he is good. I am human. And in my humanity, I am broken and fallen and entirely responsible for the way that I live and act in this world. Just as a picture of this from the gospel, the events of the cross are both the greatest example of human sin and evil and the greatest example of God's goodness and sovereign and grace. And they both exist in the same place. Pilate and Herod and every Roman soldier that was a part of Jesus' crucifixion was absolutely responsible for every single decision that they made along the way that ended up putting the Savior with no sin in his own life on the cross for the sins of all of humanity. And yet God would not have changed any of it. They could not have changed any of it. Nothing could have thwarted God's plan in that, and yet they're entirely responsible and praise God that that's the way that it works because in that act, he turned graves into gardens. He turned our mourning into dancing. There's the complicated handshake there. It has everyday implications for every single one of us. The biggest one being, you can trust God's sovereignty and his goodness in all things at all times and accept responsibility for your own decisions in all things at all times. Second piece, the book of Esther has something to say about women and their role in the kingdom of God. 
And the takeaway is this, that God delights in using the unique positions, dispositions, and giftings of women in the expansion of his kingdom. Before I like jump all the way into this, let me just make a precursor sort of statement, mostly directed at the men in the room. I'm male. I get up here most weeks out of the year. I do my best to preach and teach in a way that's contextual, whether you're male or female in our congregation or listening to the podcast or online. And yet the reality is, because I'm male, most of what I do probably lands most and resonates most loudly with men. You read the Bible, oftentimes we're holding up male figures. You read the Bible, it's full of male pronouns, right? And so we're pretty comfortable with that as men. And so for like 10 minutes here, as I shift that and I talk to women, men, it might be a little bit uncomfortable for a moment, but we're gonna do it because Esther is this beautiful picture of the way that God delights in using women to advance his kingdom, In good faith and with pastoral authenticity, we cannot talk about the book of Esther without having a conversation about what it displays for us regarding the role of women in the kingdom of God. It would do a massive disservice to the text that we've been working through to not spend some time reflecting on that. Most conversations regarding women's roles within the kingdom of God regrettably focus on on one of two ends of a spectrum. On this end of the spectrum is motherhood and like life within the family and within the home. On this end of the spectrum is a question about ordination and whether or not women can be the pastor and primary like preacher at a church. Most of the time, when we talk about uh, women and their roles within the church, in the evangelical church, we do an unfortunate disservice in focusing our conversation on one of these two ends of the spectrum. Now, let me make some statements about that. Over here on this side, not every woman is going to get married and have kids. And so when we focus on women's roles within the kingdom of God and we push everything into the family and into the home, we alienate a significant chunk of women within the people of God whether they be American women or women in other countries. And so to focus the conversation here is to do a massive disservice, as if to say the only thing that God wants to do through the women that are part of his people is put them in the home and use them within the home. And that's not to say that that role is not important, because we need to understand it and have a a biblically defined and well-rounded view of that role within the home. But that can't be the end of the conversation. On the other side, to only focus our conversation on women being ordained and what is their role within the church is to speak to a significant minority. And that's true male or female. Very, 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 very few people within the kingdom of God are going to step into lifelong vocational ordained ministry. And so when we pigeonhole a conversation all the way to that side, we're doing a huge disservice. The beauty of Esther is that it shows us all this middle space and how it is that God uses a woman to literally save his people and advance his kingdom and his will and his purposes. And there's something to be said there for the role of women within the church today. So I want to take a minute to talk about that. How does this happen in the book of Esther? First, God uses Esther's position. 
one of the things that's unique about Esther in all of Scripture is that she's prominent not because of her presence within the physical lineage of Jesus, but because of the role that she plays as God works through her to preserve that lineage. Esther isn't listed here in Scripture because directly from her line and her family flows the birth of the Messiah. Esther is prominent also not because she fits the Old Testament mold of a prophet, a priest, or a king. That's kind of Old Testament ministry talk, if you will. She doesn't fit that mold. Instead, Esther is an everyday, ordinary woman who's used by God in order to advance the fulfillment of his eternal, extraordinary will and plan. God sovereignly and providentially moves and positions Esther into the precise place that is necessary for her to be the conduit through which he acts to save his people. And it is remarkable because who's there the whole time also? Mordecai. God could have chosen to just use Mordecai in the situation, but that's not what happened. He used Esther and the unique relationship that existed between Mordecai and Esther in order to do this. If you were to sit down and read all of the book of Esther in one sitting, and you kind of kept the general story of the Old Testament in your mind, what you would see is there's kind of like a Moses motif that plays out with the person of Esther throughout the book. She's orphaned, ends up finding her way into the palace of a foreign, non-Israelite power. She kind of goes into hiding for a little bit of a time there, doesn't give away her identity, right? Moses grows up in the Egyptian palace. Then there's like a reckoning moment where they both make a decision that they're going to allow themselves to be used by God for the preservation of his people. If you just sat down and read all of that, you would see that motif and it's remarkable because Esther's the only woman who gets paired with that similar motif in all of scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. And then at the very end, It's Esther that writes the second proclamation that cements the festival of Purim, all because of her position. But God also uses Esther's disposition. God has not only providentially crafted the circumstances by which he will display his glory in the saving of his people, but he has also providentially crafted the instrument that he will use. That's the beauty of the for such a time as this moment. Esther's position and her disposition come together perfectly as God works to sovereignly save his people. Look, Esther's disposition. You see throughout the story that she's got a willingness to listen to what it is that Mordecai advises her to do. Don't share your identity. Do this, 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 and this while you're in the harem and sort of hide right? Then once some time has passed, you need to do this, 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 and this in order to save your people. And Esther's disposition is such that she listens to that and she does it. Look, we can all understand that there are people, both male and female, that when you say do this, 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 and this, they do that, 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 and that because they want no part in taking the advice that they were just given. Esther's disposition is perfect to be used by God in these particular circumstances. He also uses her willingness to be bold. Look, most of us can attest to the fact that if we arrived in a situation where the outcome was, if I die, I die, most of us are running the other direction. Esther says, I'll go into the room. Her boldness is something that God is willing to use. He's perfectly 
crafted the instrument, not just the circumstances. Esther's position and disposition. What does that mean for today? God still delights in using the unique position, disposition, and giftings of women in the expansion of his kingdom. There's a whole range of the ways in which God wants to use uh, the women of the universal church to fulfill his eternal will. He does that according to the positions that he providentially moves women into. He does it according to the dispositions that he has uniquely and wonderfully placed within them. He does it through the gifts, the spiritual gifts that he's supernaturally given to women through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Look, 61% of the American church is female. 61%. Most often, unfortunately, by the way that we talk about women's involvement within the unfolding of God's plan, we say, hey, 61%, have kids and raise them up to know the Lord. Thank you. What a massive disservice. Or we say, hey, 61%, let's have this long drawn out theological conversation and get bogged down in words and semantics. Not that that's not important. I love words and semantics about whether or not a woman can be ordained when of that 61%, a fraction would even fall into that category. And we just ignore this whole middle space. I would guess that 65 or maybe even up close to 70% of the volunteers who work within this church are female from holding babies in the nursery, to working on our hospitality team, to leading and um, providing ministry and programming and teaching to individuals within our congregation. And that is wonderful and it ought to be applauded. But for us to not then flip that around and say, here are all the wonderful ways that you can be used to advance the kingdom outside of the church, is for us to do a huge disservice. And so men, hear this clearly. It is the joy of the church and it is to the glory of God when we declare the worth and the value of women's place within God's kingdom and with the unfolding of his plan. Men, if you are married, it is one of your God-given tasks to unlock and unleash that in your wife. Women, if you are married, part of your role is to help unlock and unleash that in the life of your husband. If you're not married, it's, your go- it's one of the goals of your life to allow the Holy Spirit to unlock and unleash that in you out in the world. Every follower of Jesus is a part of what God is doing to advance the gospel and to expand the kingdom and to proclaim the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. The reality is that the vast majority of the people of God are going to be used by God in an Esther sort of way. doesn't mean you're going to become queen, but it does mean that your position and your disposition will be used perfectly by God for the unfolding of his plan through you. We all have that responsibility. Women, you are wonderfully made. You have extraordinary gifts and abilities that resound to the praise and the glory of God and are instrumental pieces in his hands for the accomplishment of his will. And this church and this pastor are applauding you and pushing you forward in the pursuit of that every single day. For us not to acknowledge, embrace, and live into that middle space would be to do a massive disservice both to the women in our congregation, but also to God's work through his church. That's the second thing that we see when we zoom out and we look at the book of Esther as a whole. Next week, we'll pick up the last two pieces of that. 
the reality of working for good in our current world while fixing our eyes on a future assurance of eternity and the responsibility of individuals within the kingdom of God as well as the collective people of God when it comes to working toward those matters. Sound good? Let's anchor ourselves here, though, as we close today. Looking at the last seven verses of the book of Esther, we're reminded that as circumstances change, God does not. He will fulfill his plans and his purposes. He will do so according to his character. He will exercise the fullness of his sovereignty and providence in making it do so. He's already done so in Christ. He will continue to do so in Christ and he will culminate all of it in the sending of Christ in power and in glory when Jesus comes back to reconcile all things to himself. Amen? Amen. Amen. The world needs followers of Jesus who hold tight to that truth and proclaim it to the ends of the earth. Let's sing together. You can stand up.